Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playerets, doo-doo-dats, everybody in between. Welcome to another fabulous edition of Game of Crimes. And the reason I say that is our guest, um, Spanish, is his uh, first language. And so I think in honor of that, we should go back to the original greeting. Don't you, Murph? Absolutely. It's... Uh, um there's a reason we do things. I mean, we're just not haphazardly throwing things at her, you folks. This is this is all planned. It takes us years to figure out what we're going to do, or or minutes. I, I don't know. Some one or the other. And whenever we do it, we can't remember what we did two minutes ago. But it takes us years <laughs> to plan it out. So, you know, and I even practice my Spanish with uh, our upcoming guest here. You know, I, I use my my introduction, my hola, y'all, and, and he understood. And he actually had better white Spanish, you know, gringo Spanish than we did. <laughs> oh, y'all are going to love that. <laughs> we're going to. Hey, guys, well, welcome back to another exciting episode, episode 119 of the 119th consecutive attempt to take us off the air. We refuse to go quietly into the night. Right. Thank you guys for joining us. Hey, just some quick housekeeping before we get started. Apple and Spotify, hit those reviews. My guys, remember, by the way, if you're on Google, Google Podcasts is going away. So make mm-hmm. sure you're on one of the other major platforms there. Uh, Apple, Spotify, name your poison, but uh, Stitcher's gone. Google Podcasts will be gone, but just make sure you leave your five stars wherever you can. Head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com, for everything about the show, including merch and books. We, we, we list things over there, including with our next guest, too. Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but definitely where you have to be. And we, we look, I tell you, we just had some fun again. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just had, we did our 911 episode, the most unique 911 call I think ever taken in the history of 911 calls. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, you'll hear us laughing, doing a lot of laughing. You got to listen to it. Uh, and you'd heard it before, but it was like one of the, can you imagine being the dispatcher taking this call <laughs> and trying to, so you, what happened now? <laughs> then we get into a real serious case. Yeah. Listen. yeah, but we get into a real serious case, but we thought we'd lead off with something fun. But we also do a lot of stuff. We got our Q&A coming up too here. So if you've got questions for us, make sure you get us in, uh, get that in for us as well. We've got case of the month. And our Warden of the Throne, we just did another couple good ones there. Quad case, we do uh, Murph picks too, I pick too. So great stuff, folks. Just go over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Yeah. Uh, and also, make sure you go visit our favorite Mafia Queen, Sandy Salvato, the Iron Fist with the Velvet Glove. Rules over everything that is called Game of Crimes fans. Just go to facebook.com slash, uh, or just not slash, but uh, search for Game of Crimes fans. Ask for admittance, and you will have fun. I think they'll have fun. Don't you think they'll have fun, Murph? Absolutely. I, I can almost guarantee it. We guarantee, we, we guarantee it. There you go. For 30 days or your money back. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> and well, it doesn't cost you anything for the podcast. Of course, we can't give you money back. Right. Hey, but Murph, but you know, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... You know we're not going to take ourselves serious. And if you haven't figured that out yet, well, hang on. Yeah, because we're going to prove we don't take ourselves seriously because guess what time it is, Murph? Guess what time it is? I know it's late afternoon for you and you're going to sleep, but guess what time it is? It's time. It's nap time. But it, what it is time for is Small Town Police Blurred. All right. Hey, this one comes to us. Actually, I stole this from the Game of Crimes fan page, curly of courtesy of Molly Fitzsimmons Schlenz. Hopefully I said that right. S-C-H-L-E-N-Z, Schlenz. So this comes to us, Murph, from Bath Township Police Department in Michigan. 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 So, uh, and this was this was posted on a Facebook posting by the Bath Township Police. And basically they're talking about an encounter they had with the person. If you are going to get incredibly intoxicated at the bar and then drive home, we have a suggestion for you. Okay. On your way home, when you inevitably stop at that McDonald's for some McNuggets... A McDouble and a McFlurry. Make sure the McDonald's is actually open. All of the lights being off and no one around would be a clue. Then when you sit in the drive-thru at the closed McDonald's for 15 minutes honking your horn and cussing because no one is taking your order, make sure there isn't a police cruiser parked 20 feet away watching you fail miserably. And then after your failed attempt of getting food from the closed restaurant, do not school your tires out of the parking lot, over a curb, and out onto the roadway. That is how you end up at the jail, and the jail does not have any McFlurries. Hashtag McFailed. That's a bad night. Well, first of all, <laughs> McDonald's, too. Ugh, McNuggets? God, do you know what goes into those things? They don't either. <laughs> Bingo! And, and then on top of everything else, you're going to wake up with a hangover 
in lockup. <laughs> just gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to get worse, too, if you go, mm, my rear end's sore. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> Thank you very much. Anyway, hey, another stupid criminal story comes to us from Dallas. Okay. This happens all over the place. So I'm glad to see it happens in Dallas, too. All right. Uh, and this guy has been through the ringer before a hapless bank robber abided by a Dallas teller's request. Before he could rob the place, she wanted two forms of ID. <laughs> and he fell for it? A judge sentenced 49-year-old Nathan Wayne Pugh of Say Cheese, or whatever <laughs> Say it's called. Cheese. Say Cheese. <laughs> to more than eight years on Tuesday, Pugh tried to hold up a bank in Dallas, the Wells Fargo Bank. By the way, F. Wells Fargo. I'll tell you about that later. The teller the teller uh, stalled Hughes by telling him she needed to see two forms of ID. So what did he show her? His Wells Fargo debit card, duh, and a state ID card. He tried to flee with $800. He pleaded guilty in October to a bank robbery charge. Murph, he was already on parole for two aggravated robberies. The guy should have learned by now he's not cut out to rob banks. I'm, I'm surprised he didn't say, here, hold my gun a second. got to get this out of my pocket. <laughs> what a moron. Uh, okay. Well, hey, Murph, we'll end up with a final story. This one comes to us from Boise, Idaho. Hey, do you have a smartphone? I do. Yeah, does a smart... But but so so let's say that you're a really stupid person. Does a smartphone make you smart or stupid? Uh, I would like to say it makes me smart when I'm trying to do things on it. I feel really stupid sometimes. This guy feels really stupid, too, because um, a 21-year-old Idaho man is in trouble. With the law, he's charged with unlawful exercise of the function of a police officer. He tried to pull over a car. Oh, oh that's bad. With his smartphone, because he got a app for his smartphone <laughs> that flashes blue and red lights, just like the Popo. Oh, you're kidding. And he tried to pull someone over, and they said, ah, it doesn't look like it's an officer. Uh, the person pulled in briefly behind. The suspicious driver followed the car and called police who located Welch's vehicle. Police found an application on his smartphone that flashed blue and red lights. And then guess what? He got blue and red lights, and then they arrested him. Oh, that is just stupid. Unbelievable. I, it's People just never cease to manage to do this. So here, here's, uh, you know, Andrew, Alexander Welch, having a smartphone does not make you smart when you're naturally dumb to begin with. Sorry, pal. <laughs> just doesn't work that way. <laughs> so an idiot. Oh, what well, was he going to pull the person over for, I wonder? Uh, I, who knows? Just just for fun and giggles, I guess. You know? hey, are you as stupid as I am? Uh, <laughs> you are. If you <laughs> fell for this, pulled over with the smartphone. Who are you, you going to hold it to? You're going to hold it outside? Like, you know, it's the, is he also going, woo, woo. Wee-woo, wee-woo. Wee-woo, wee-woo. <laughs> well, I'll tell you somebody who is smart. It's our next guest. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we got to this smart person. Um, this, this, this is a very, I'll tell you right now, very interesting story. Um, and a very deceptive one, too, when you think where you think it's going. Yes. And where it ends up taking us. So, uh, tell us a little bit about our upcoming guest, Murph. This is someone I've heard about. You have to heard, we've heard about this guy for a long time. Uh, he was a police officer in Mexico, believe it or not. Um, has Tijuana. some har- yeah Tijuana. has some harrowing stories to tell, um, and you'll also tell you'll also hear him tell why he left the police and then immigrated to the United States. So he's currently going through the immigration process. But he just didn't stop there. He's t- he's taken the things that he learned and he's offering those up to uh, American law enforcement, American military, uh, security companies. We're talking about a guy named Ed Calderon. Uh, Ed's been on a lot of podcasts. He's he's got his own podcast. You'll hear us talk about that towards the end. Um, but here's a man who lived in a third world country. And if you're from Mexico, and I just called your country a bad thing, I'm sorry, but uh, that's my take on it. Um, but he 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 went through experiences that make him appreciate living in the United States. And and you're gonna hear a story here. So this is this is one we've worked for months and months to get him on board. We finally were able to get on his schedule and uh, just can't thank him enough. Well, Murphy, and when you say we work, this is a guy who's been on Joe Rogan's podcast, Jack Carr's podcast. This guy has made the major rounds and we were lucky to get him. Oh, I th- I think he's been on Rogan two or three times. And I don't, I don't listen to those before we have a guest on because I want our our interviews to be genuine and original. No, we don't or, want to copy organic. The word is organic. We want them to be ours. That's what. That's a trendy word. It'll go away trendy eventually. Word. 
So anyway, that, I mean, this is a special guest, so just really honored to have Ed on here with us. Well, we can't get into Ed in our organic podcast, which is found in the organic aisle of Whole Foods. If you're looking for our podcast, we're in the organic section. But I got to ask you, we won't find out about Ed unless I ask you, are you ready, Murph, to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Absolutely. So everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. You're going to hear some things you're not going to hear anywhere else. Bring on Mr. Ed Calderon. Well, hey, I'm going to just break. Um, we weren't saying our usual intro, but I'm going to do it for this because it's going to make sense. So hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playwrights, do-do-dets, everybody, welcome back. We've got a really special guest on. Um, not only is he special because of what he's done, he's special because we, you know, we had to book this far in advance because this dude is so busy. He's been on a lot of the major podcasts. I just listened to a three-hour interview with Jack Carr. So we want to welcome former cop, really good guy. Welcome to Game of Crimes, Ed Calderon. Amigo, bienvenidos. Thank you for the multiple language uh, welcome. I, I feel pretty excited. We can say ocean periana, tavarish nupuruska. Yeah. No terveks tavernacul, no cuitas is mortum est. Espanol es peligroso, lo siento. You tell him, Ed. Shut him down right now. Yeah, yeah look, um, Mar, Mar, wait till Murph starts speaking Spanish. You're, everybody's, you're going to be dodging that like you're dodging bullets right now. Uh, no, let me just see if you understand this. Hola, y'all. Oh, that's great. great. I mean, I I just, I remember somebody saying, I used to could once in front of me, like a few years back. (laughs) And I was in the United States. I was like, sir, could you sit down with me and explain what I used to could means? (laughs) (laughs) What part of the South were you in? (laughs) Ah, Somewhere in Tennessee. You know, I was was followed around a Walmart. There you go. There's two strikes right there. You're in Tennessee and at a Walmart. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that, that that was that was my moment of learning, you know. Yeah, and well, third thing was if you'd gone to a Waffle House after that, you would have completed the cycle. So, oh yeah, uh, Waffle House is a, definitely a, a very spiritual place where people, you know, you have to fight and eat at the same time. It's, it's, it's a great place to learn urban survival. Well, hey, there's a lot of people in Walmart that don't work at least. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I'm right, Ed, that's where you pick up some of your techniques is watching the fights at Waffle House, right? That goes into your training later. I mean, uh, deflecting chairs is something that, that's probably. I think it's on their. Uh, it's on their. That was uh, a Jedi worksheet. move. Yeah, what that one lady did, where she deflected that chair. It's like, man, next you, thing I would have thought is you know pushing back and people hitting the wall. You know, one, one thing I always say is that we're an expression of where we're from and the environment that made us. And she, you could definitely tell she was from the hood. <laughs> she, she'd been through a few fights. So, yeah, you guys can tell this already. This is going to be fun. But hey, we got to get oh, yeah. started though with you too. With you know, thing of ours, Coso Nostro, as we say, thing of ours. You were uh, born and raised in Tijuana, Mexico, as they say. Yeah. Uh, but um, so, but but how did you? How did you? That's a tough area, right? I mean, you're not too far from San Diego. A lot of cross border stuff. But what led you into wanting to become a cop? Did you have family, friends? What led you? To, what led you to want to become a police officer? And obviously, a very dangerous area. Yeah. Well, it's, first off, it, Tijuana was not that dangerous when I was growing up. I mean, the violence started kind of like really percolating to the top, probably in the 90s. Uh, I was born in 82, so I got to see Tijuana when it was still not as rowdy as it uh, as it turned. Um, mm-hmm. I had nobody in my family that was a cop, and I was a punk rock kid, skateboarded. I would get in fights with the cops, the municipal cops in Tijuana. You know, um, it's, it's always been a pretty corrupt institution, so... I had a fuck the police banner on my in my in my room and stuff like that. So I didn't I didn't want to be a cop. That was far from my mind. Um, but Mexico being the way it is, um, there was not a lot of options for a young man uh, that uh, didn't have a lot of career uh, path uh, choices. I did about two years of medical school. Uh, this was around nine eleven. Economy went in the toilet, and I had to find options. It was a call, it was working at a call center. It was working at this weird experimental police force that I saw in an ad in the newspaper, uh, or it was joining some of my friends that uh, went on and joined one of the two major cartels uh, operating in the area. So go back, experimental police force. What the, what the hell is what is an experimental police force? Uh, it, it's uh, it was something that hasn't hadn't been talked about a lot. I, I recently was on, did a long conversation podcast with my former boss and legendary Mexican lawman, Lizaola, 
Yeah, he was a he was a army uh, colonel. Um, very very smart man. Basically, they handed him a program of training up a police force that he would li- then lead. And he very much basically focused on creating a militarized, counter narcotic, uh, Americanized in a lot of ways police force um, in the on the border and selecting the different types of people for it. Basically he was looking for young and rowdy people for it because he knew he was basically going to go into a war. Um, I saw the ad in the newspaper, uh, showed it to my parents and they were like, you're crazy. You're never going to be able to do this. And that was their worst mistake probably because I I love challenges. So (laughs) I found myself in a uh, refurbished prison being trained up by members of the GAFE, uh, these guys uh, are where the uh, Zetas originated. Uh, Mexican Special Forces guys were the ones in charge of our training. So it was quickly apparent that this wasn't uh, your run-of-the-mill, you know, police agency. It was they, they were they were getting us ready for something different. This one were they going to um, focus on kidnappings? No, I mean it was basically focused on anything organized crime related. Uh, everybody okay. was hands off in, in, in Baja and, and all over Mexico. Local police officers were basically working one side or the other. Uh, the army was working one side or the other too as well. So they really wanted to try something different. Um, they put all of us through FBI background checks, which was unheard of back then as Mexicans, you know, and uh, polygraph exams, uh, surprise house visits. Uh, they would talk to the neighbors of the people that were wanted to get recruited. Uh, it was very Americanized in its selection process and even some of the training. I got to train in Coronado, for example, with some of the NSW guys. What, what year was this? This was 2004 when the unit, uh, when I first got involved in the unit. Probably 2003-ish era was when it got started. So <clears throat> when all this concept came up, I was in, uh, I was in the original meetings for that operation down in Mexico City when the we were at the embassy having a meeting with the ambassador and... I think uh, SOCOM was actually there and, and some of the military forces and then went over and met with the, the Mexican government and the officials. And, you know, a lot of the questions were they wanted to bring you guys up in the U.S. to train. And uh, they were trying to figure out how to get weapons across the border. That was the biggest problem we were encountering. And that was this was still in the infancy stages. But the, well, You mean and, how to get weapons across the border legally? Yeah. Well, you know, bring their weapons into the U.S. to train yeah. with because you want to train with the weapon you're going to carry, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I, I think out of those meetings uh, came a lot of the, probably a lot of the root uh, elements of our training, uh, like uh, focusing on M, 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 focus on the M4 platform, focusing on the M4 platform as a viable weapon, uh, H&K uh, rifles and, and, and that th- stuff of that nature basically being invested in. Um, and then us basically going to go into the U.S. and learn from, you know, U.S. agencies and the military to kind of how to f- figure out this pilot program of what they were oh, trying yeah. to do at a nationwide scale. They did it in Baja first and then, when I say they, I mean Lieutenant Colonel Lizaola, who was basically the 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 guy that originated this this form of policing in in, in Mexico. Uh, he started in Baja, and then and then he got moved to Ciudad Juarez, where he basically had the same kind of results. He he put uh, he put the crime down to, to he put those cities out of off the most dangerous cities list on the planet. Uh, well, it it was not, not an easy not an easy process, of course, but. A lot of that kind of started off with him. That that's that's fascinating because um, we came back for a second meeting on that, and it was starting to move forward. And I mean, even even ATF was talking about, well, we can get the weapons across, you know, one way, but we can't get them across the other way. And we're thinking, well, just let one of the gun shops send them down to Mexico because they're doing it anyway. But <laughs> that was a big joke in the meeting. But um, I, I never heard any more about that. Um, so I'm <laughs> there, talking there, about zero degrees of separation. Here we are. There was an attempt. Uh, it didn't work as oh, long as like uh, it, it didn't work in the long run because like everything in Mexico, things go in a cycle of five to six years, which is a presidential term. Um, we had a lot of backing because we had two, two political terms of a federal, uh, basic federal presidency that were of the same party. So there was a continuation of efforts. And then was that Fox. Yeah, it was Fox and then Calderon. Um, mind Any you, relation? 
No, 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 not at all. Uh, <laughs> not at all. Even though I, I, I smile I did, out of you. <laughs> no, I, I, we, I, I remember I worked for a governor for a bit and I used to have my name tag and stuff like that. And people look at it for, for a minute, you know, um, it, it was one of the most corrupt presidencies that we've ever had, the Felipe Calderon administration. Um, not not because of any other reason than than what they decided to do, which is basically militarize this uh, this drug war and uh, to put people in charge that were completely corrupted. You know, uh, Martinez Luna was one of the guys that was basically at the head of this institution that uh, that uh, we were working under, and as you know, as, as things have uh, come out recently, he is, uh, he was basically working for one of the largest uh, criminal organizations in Mexico at the time. Yeah. Garcia Luna. Garcia Luna. Yeah. Yeah. So we used to meet we, with him too. I think he was in his initial meetings. Yep. So he was, uh, he was on the take for a long while and he was the guy in charge of, uh, basically setting up programs and, 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 uh, verifications and selection programs for us. Like we had to go through multiple, confidence exams, FBI background checks, uh, polygraph exams almost on a yearly basis while he was in charge of us. And Did anybody and put him through a polygraph? Oh, that's it, a great question. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's in prison here in the United States now. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. It's a question that I would ask American uh, policymakers and uh, people of that sort to kind of like uh, think about. Uh, all of us including myself, and people can verify this. I, I went through multiple FBI background checks. Every time I would go into training in the U.S., they would check our they would check our names just to see if anything popped up. But somehow the guy that was in charge of everything at a federal level was in, scrutiny. was in constant communication with, these, uh, with the other side. And our, our folks that were there in Mexico, stationed in Mexico City during that time, that was, he was always very suspect. You know, the, there wasn't an... Um, an open sharing of information. I'm trying to be a little diplomatic here, but you know, when a guy retires from the Mexican government, he moves to Miami and buys a $12 million house, you know, in law enforcement, we call that a clue. Well, no, he's just thrifty. <laughs> he, he saves his money and cuts yeah. coupons. He did. He just didn't tell anybody where it came from. I think it revealed what it should have revealed to Americans when that happened is the fact that, you know, this, this problem with cartels in Mexico is a problem that doesn't have any borders, realistically. It is a top-down problem. Um, Martinez Luna was in charge of the whole scheme of fighting and starting this drug war. And utilizing federal forces, utilizing state forces, utilizing uh, coordination with local forces, and the military. Luna left. And he's in custody. But a lot of the people he worked with within the organizing structure of the military are still there. Mm-hmm. So, so let's, let's talk about you for a minute, too, because sure. coming up through this, um, you, you, passing the background checks, that's one thing, right? But it seems that one cartel or the other, depending on which side, you know, is uh, most favored by who's ever in power. But you had to have been targeted, too, by them, right? Either for recruitment or for compromise or— oh. Yeah. All the time, right? How yeah. how did that how did that happen? How did that work? How did you resist it? So, the first attempts at uh, trying to figure that out uh, were when we were going through training. Uh, people started getting kicked out during during uh, the process. It was a six six to eight month process of training uh, where we're basically put through a boot camp. Uh, urban combat uh, policing type academy that is very much designed to make us quit, you know, that type of selection process. Uh, while we were there, we're seeing members of the group that we're in basically being pulled out of formation, and we don't see them again. And since we're, you know, young and stupid, we can't ask any questions. We just assume the worst. Later on, it became apparent that these people were not passing their FBI background checks, and some of that stuff takes a while for it to come back. So these people were found to be people, person, people traffickers or caught or arrested in the U.S. for something and deported, or they were found to have some sort of association. So even, even at the start, there, there, were, there were attempts to basically put some of their people in. Uh, when you got out, I mean, it was always somebody that's already in approaching you with a question. Um, hey, do you mind calling us when you're going out and where you're going to be patrolling. 
Oh, it's there's a money in it for you. And you're like, that sounds like it was that blatant and that upfront. It was that blatant that out front because these were people that were belong to different institutions. So when I got out, I was working uh, for a, a thing they called uh, Base de Operaciones Mixtas, which is a mixed operations group. Basically, I, as a state agent, would work with the military or work with federal agencies to patrol or to be a guide or to figure things out for them as we were trying to go after certain targets in, in the region of Baja, for example. And within some of these groups, uh, you would have, you know, state prosecutor office people that would show up and say, hey, come here, I need to talk to you, you know. So that's, th- those were the attempts. They would go after people first with questions and they would offer money. Um, I think the first time I was offered something was like $500 just to tell them where we were going to be during, the, during our operations, basically to report back on where we were. And what risk do you take when you say no to something like that? Oh, it's a big one. Uh, it's a big one. But, so why uh, did you say no? Because I was living in a military barracks and I didn't have any family to speak of. And I had nothing to lose, realistically. And that's exactly why they recruited people like me for that group. Um, we, were, we were, in a lot of ways, protected. Um, we were one of the most, we, we were one of the best paid agencies in Mexico. Um, I was one of the most highly paid agents in, in that in that uh, in that group as well. So it, for me, it was uh, it was just the math of it, and also we had uh, two generations of agents already out, and the horror stories we would hear back from people that said yes was enough for us to not fall in fall for that one. You know, it's uh, they would tell us, you know, that the, the Lieutenant Colonel Lizola would say. The hand that steals will hide itself, but the hand that spends will give the other one away. Um, almost like telling warning children about the devil in a lot of ways. Uh, but uh, it's true. Once you're in that pocket, you can't get out. And also, if you're working for one side, the other side views you as the enemy. So that's why you get people that work in some of these police institutions get assassinated outside their houses or murdered before they go to work. It's uh, it's because they're working for one or the other side. And once you do that, you're basically putting a target on your back. There's no, there's no getting out of it and there's no, you know, dropping it and leaving and retiring. There's nothing, there's none of that once you're on that payroll. So it was, it was just never an option for me. Very smart. Yeah. There's no retirement plan in the narco, you know, in the cartel business, you know, you either die or you go to prison. Very few people have a 401k. And, and in the police, I had no concept of a retirement plan for me. And I worked for 12 years in a police institution that was one of the most highly paid in Mexico. Well, let's rewind a little bit to talk about some of that, because one of the things that bothered me, you know, we're both cops, you know that too. I mean, uh, you cut us, we bleed blue. And uh, it, it hurts me when, you know, I've lost friends. I know Murph has, you have, but the rate at which you lose some of the officers down there, the, the number of officers that are killed at any one time. Uh, and some of these ambushes and stuff like that. It, it's just, for me, it boggles my mind because I think about some of the bad incidents we've had here in the U.S. And it only involves maybe four, there was a couple of times where four officers were killed, you know, something happened. But you've had instances down there where there's 20, you know, or more killed. How does the, pu- what is what is it that keeps the public from rising up? Is it fear? Is it the power the cartels have? What is it that keeps from, when you have a huge event like this, from galvanizing people to say, look, we've had enough? Yeah, well, I think number one is the police is the enemy in a lot of these places. Uh, that's sad fact of it. I remember realizing this when I was, uh, I went with the military and a few of our agents basically to this small town in Ensenada. A lot of things had happened there and we were basically cleaning up. Uh, we were responding to something that happened overnight. Um, I thought we were there to, you know, basically stabilize and keep people safe. Uh, the the amount of spit that I had to clean off my gear and all the uh, the ways that I'm going to die screamed at me from all these ladies. I didn't realize that the people that were arrested and killed there, that were cartel members, were all family members of the towns we were in. They were the basis of the economy. We were the enemy. We were the villains. I think that's a big aspect of it that not a lot of people realize that these organizations are so ingrained within the government and within so, and within the social stratus of everything 
that they very much are a government force of their own. They're very much providers. They're very much protectors. And they're very much linked with blood by the people that are around them. Um, that's their armor. That's why they are hard to defeat. That's why they're hard to move out of the way. Well, that's uh, kind of Pablo's approach too, Murph. You know, you, you become the Robin Hood. You provide all the money. You build schools. You do things. And pretty soon, I mean, even in Mexico, right, I think if I read, if I understand correctly, I think the cartels are the second biggest type of business in Mexico right now. Yeah. And I, I think Pablo Escobar and what happened in Colombia gets brought up a lot. And I researched and studied this deeply while I was going through my process, figuring things out on my end as far as the work that I did. We are beyond that here. Uh, Pablo Escobar, you know, the amount and the size of influence that some of these criminal organizations have and the foreign aid that they, they get provided to them are not anywhere near what, what happened in Colombia. And also, you know, Pablo Escobar built himself a prison. Uh, the head of the Sinaloa cartel, the tr like the real originator of this cartel, has never been arrested. Uh, so there's no problem on his end as far as the, the size of the, the scope of the the issue. He was he learned his tradecraft in, in Los Angeles. The Sinaloa cartel, truthfully, is more of the Los Angeles cartel if you really go back into the history of it. Um, you, the just, government, uh, not to interrupt you, but are you talking about Mayo? Yeah, Mayo Zambada. Yeah. El Mayo Zambada has never been arrested, and he learned most of his tradecraft in Los Angeles by people that were involved in the Bay of Pigs. So the, the scope of the scope of the problem, I think, is beyond anything you would see that you saw in Colombia. It is so ingrained in society, like the government, the military, the, everybody's in on it. It is, it is, uh, it is, it is interesting to see the concept that the U.S. has of fighting these cartels, and they think they're just two of them that are fighting each other, but they don't realize. That for them to be able to operate that openly, they have to have some sort of government sponsorship. We recently had a major, our version of the WikiLeaks incident, basically, a major leak of government documents by, uh, from the Mexican military, Sedena. They call them the Wakamaya leaks. Within them, the military themselves report on how certain military regions favor one cartel or the other. I mean, this is this is this is like the Pentagon reporting on you know uh, you know I don't know like military units in, within the U.S. supporting one side or uh, one gang or the other depending on the region they're in. Um, so it's 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 a clear problem. It's it's open. Uh, it's also it also tells you a lot about the fact that there's two giant cartels in the United in Mexico. One of them, the New Generation Cartel, which is very clearly kind of state-sponsored by some foreign entity, probably China, if I uh, had to bet. And the Sinaloa cartel, which seems to be involved in an internal political thing right now going on. Um, and also its head, its historical heads has never been arrested, so it makes one wonder if he's not a U.S. asset of some sort or if the U.S. is playing favorites in, in some way, shape, or form with its policy. Well, you made an allusion to Bay of Pigs, and that sounds like you're referencing. Are you suggesting that um, CIA was involved in training in some of the tradecraft? I, I, I mean, drug running uh, at the scale that was seen after the scene longer cartel got created. Uh, the stuff that happened with the DEA back in the day, which is way beyond my time. Uh, we only heard stories about it. I actually got to talk to some of the older Federale guys that were still around to kind of that kind of witness some of that stuff it's probably clear as day that cia has been involved in in things in mexico for years um recent uh the classified documents have revealed that a lot of the presidents in mexico in the past uh few decades were actually on the cia payroll you know um and this is no secret anymore so there's obviously been some sort of effort by the u.s's foreign policy to not only um, be aware of, but also have some sort of control or containment operation around some of these criminal organizations that are very clear. Well, it doesn't seem to be working. I think... Uh, I mean, you, if you talk containment, there is no containment. I mean, they're, you're getting to the point now where the cartels run 
I mean, regions, they run, they are better equipped than the military is. When I saw a picture of something, I had to look at it for a couple of seconds because I said, no, that's got to be military. Then you look at it. No, it's cartel, armored vehicles, air assets, surface to air missiles, machine guns, you know, a high powered, you know, they've got explosives, you know, these things are a, like you say, an entity unto themselves. I think what changed is that a new player was, got involved in Mexico. Um, at some point during the uh, legalization of marijuana in California, uh, there was a big, a big um, public thing said about them going after cartel money by making pot ele- pot legal. Didn't work, you know. It, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Car- cartels were already growing pot in federal lands and still are uh, in the United. They were already involved in illegal grows, and they just turned them into legal grows. And a lot of the the crops in Mexico just basically changed to heroin. There's a specific point in the past where you could see the opiate epidemic, the prescription opiate epidemic and in, in the United States, and heroin laced with fentanyl. Just replace it in a very specific point in history in the United States. And you can kind of tell around that time the legalization of marijuana was happening in California and that whole thing was happening. Uh, Mexican heroin is very weak. Uh, it's not it's not like that stinky dark stuff you find in the Middle East or the stuff they used to find even in Mexico that was brought in from other places. It was light colored brown. Somebody somewhere figured out that if you add fentanyl to it, you could give it a, a very substantial kick and clients are going to like it. Uh, and when I say somebody, all fentanyl back then came from a specific source, China, and started getting oh, yeah. produced in Mexico. And now they send all the precursor chemicals there. In fact, they're even enabling a lot of the money laundering for the cartels, you know, back through the Chinese banks. So this is China's very in fact, there's a book, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's called Unrestricted Warfare. Yeah. It's by two Chinese PLA officers. And in it they actually lay out this whole thing around fentanyl has been written, you know, you look at it, there's the uh, there's the corollary to it, but they actually describe how to how to make a society implode on itself and it's through the providing of these of these of the, you got to facilitate the money, the logistics, but the chemicals. Man, you give people enough fentanyl, they'll do your work. They'll they don't have to fire a shot. We'll kill ourselves. I think Excellent. what happened recently that you say, you say the containment failed. What happened is that a player game get, get, got involved in this whole foreign drug war policy the U.S. had in Mexico, a foreign entity. And I think what you see is some sort of proxy war going on between Chinese state-sponsored agencies in Mexico, which are probably the, even, even including the military in a lot of ways. We just saw the Russian, uh, a Russian uh, and Chinese military uh, uh, contingent march at the, uh, at the parade, at the military parade in Mexico. Um, so there's, and also we have a currently an open Chavista, open to the uh, open leftist, open Venezuela supporter in charge of the presidency in Mexico. Oh, hugs, this, not thugs. Yeah, you know, yeah. Hugs, abrazos, no, abrazos, no balazos. And you know, he's 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 a guy that has you know met with El Chapo's family, and also <gasps> I think uh, at a, a press conference he told a group of Sinaloa farmers to not support foreign drug uh, drug uh, drugs being infused into the environment because they had to support local drug growers. Was this so, Lopez Obrador? Yeah, this is Lopez Obrador. <laughs> so for our oh, listeners, we're talking about the president of Mexico here, just so there's yeah. no misunderstanding. Yeah, well. Uh, and there's a novel approach. Hey, support your local drug pusher. You know, support your <laughs> local narcotics. You know, your his, no local. Don't buy foreign. Buy local. Yeah, his, his, uh, his, his, drug, his counter-drug policy has been basically selective. And I think if people want to realize what sort of <sighs> – what sort of influence is currently in the federal government as far as who they're supporting, just look at who they go after. It's very specific. Uh, they're going after new generation cartels. They're going after factions of those, of the, the, the Chapitos, which are El Chapo Guzman's uh, sons, but well, not he's, he's in custody now, but that doesn't stop anything. Right. It, it, it didn't. Uh, it, it was, I mean, from uh, the perspective of somebody in Mexico working in law enforcement, the fascination and the effort against El, El Chapo Guzman was boggling to most of us because he was, yeah, he was a celebrity, you know, but he didn't run things, not at the level that the U.S. seemed to think he was, I guess, which, I don't know, it, it, it was, it was, uh, 
he was he was a uh, he was a big target. There was a lot of effort put to get him in custody, and not a lot, of, not nothing really changed with his arrest, which was performed by two federal police officers, by the way, not by the DEA, not by the Mexican Marina is something that I want to just get off my chest because well, that's, oh, that's really? pretty, that was pretty fun. Uh, that's, it's been a recurring thing that I hear like, Oh, the DEA arrested him or the, no, 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 Mex- no, 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 no. We didn't say that. I think the guys <laughs> we talked to made it very clear. It was the Mexican Marines who went in, you know, they, they were working with them, but you're saying it was two federal police officers. He, he, he carjacked us. Uh, about, well, no, uh, I mean, eventually, but I'm talking about the operation. Oh, overall. Yeah, yeah. 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 But the, the actual, the, I know what you're getting at. The actual yeah. arrest. The actual, the actual, yeah. the actual arrest was, the, was done by two federal roadside cops. Yeah. And he's in that dirty white, wow. he's in a dirty t-shirt, you know, and, uh, yeah, he went through a, he went through a sewer because he had some of the most advanced escaped, uh, safe houses that anybody's ever seen in Mexico. At least on that end, he was, he was the top of the game. Um, and I say this because it seems to me that a lot of effort was put into the narrative of this operation, you know, um, and it, it was boggling the mind to some of us that have been in that uh, field for years to try and why, why all that effort over some a specific you know why? guy? Because it's because if you get if you if you designate somebody as a big figurehead and then you get that figurehead, you claim victory. You go, hey, we've done something about it, as opposed to uh, have you really? I mean, is it is it about the stat? Is there or is it about the actual impact? And I know Murph, you, we've had these discussions before. Well, even and, and and so the reason I was in Mexico City on those original meetings is as I was working out of our special operations division. And I was running the Mexico Central America section, um, and I can't get into a lot of detail on some of this because it's some of it's still classified, and some of you just don't want people to know capabilities. But there was a lot of discussion about that guy, about Chapo, and there were uh, assets in place that could monitor certain things the execution part was the problem. And this was back in, what do you say, 2003? I was there from 01 to 06. So this was three or four, 03 or 04. And, you know, my suggestion to everybody was, let's let's bring in uh, our special operators, just like we did in Colombia against Pablo. The problem is, they, you know, once we got, we had Dev Grew and we had Delta down there with us. and But then the their general said, well, you can only be in the base. You can't go out in the field. Special mission it's unit like, Delta. <laughs> Delta Force doesn't exist. You, you got the best freaking operators in the world confined to base. I mean, these guys are the freaking studs of the world. But the, but here was the difference: the the Colombians invited us down there. The Mexicans yeah. won't. No, that, that's it's Mexico has a very, and I'm Mexican uh, you know, by birth, and I'm I'm making my way into being a citizen in the U.S. And I it's 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 a. Uh, Mexico in general has a very difficult relationship with the United States for foreign policy. And it's historically been pretty bad on our, on the Mexican end. So the inviting the U S military to operate in Mexico is political suicide in every single way, shape or form you can have in Mexico. If you do that, you're, you're dead politically. And the army knows this. You go all the way back to Pancho Villa and, and the the Alamo and that. I mean, this is this not something just happened yesterday. Yeah, yeah, but the, but the like I've 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 heard rumors of very tall people wearing federal police uniforms that weren't uh, that uh, that didn't know how to respond in Spanish. You know, hola, uh, y'all. <laughs> I've, 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 I was around for some of those uh, weird fucking events. Um, the I mean, the, the the main issue I think is it any any it's uh, free for all and it's lawless. Mexico is re- realistically free for all and lawless. Like if the United States really wanted to stop the fentanyl flow into its border and through its borders, it would probably have to set up some sort of military or naval blockade on the Pacific and the Atlantic side. See, uh, I've. I've floated this idea of actually was actually discussing this with the guy at DOD this morning, talking about the legalities of it. You, you almost get to the point where you have to declare a demilitarized zone. You have to say three miles either side of this is open for military action. I mean, to your point, you got to blockade everything from the border to the water to the airspace. We're almost back into a Tom Clancy clear and present danger thing, you know, to where you have to declare until they declare the cartels a terrorist organization, you know, or something that gives them an official designation to go after them, to your point, it's a political issue, you know, uh, and it's not been handled well. 
I mean, I mean, they, they, the, the whole, you know, terrorist designation thing. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, they, they have every. I mean, they're politicized in any way, in any way, every way. They have. That's why Mexico has one of the most. Uh, they they assassinate a lot of political candidates in Mexico. I think it's one of the places where it's one of the most dangerous places to be one in the world. Um, they also go after the press a lot because members of the press report on one side or the other. Um, so they're very much politicized and they're very much in the political sphere. Uh, they hang people from bridges and the amounts of the the ISIS, uh, ISIS execution videos that you would see back in the day were all realistically inspired by the Mexican ones that I was were coming. Say, yeah. I mean, the, the, the cartels, they were doing this year. This wasn't, this wasn't anything new to them beheading people. We got so upset and we should have, you know, when ISIS beheaded a couple of captors, but then there'd be 10 people you'd find buried in a mass grave, all had their heads taken off. And it was like just another day in news reporting. Yeah. The, the, the ones that really pioneered the whole projecting horrible events uh, aspect of it was Mexico and the cartels were posting some of these uh, execution videos before ISIS. Um, it's, it's been interesting to see them basically express every single element that you would consider for a terrorist organization. Well, it's a transnational group uh, engaging in violence for a political end, you know, and it's exactly what they affect. They affect elections. They affect spending. They affect, uh, you know, yeah, Tier, I, I don't know why we haven't designated them that. But then the question is, even if we did, what would change? Uh, I think I think I think I know one of the reasons why that hasn't happened. And it's a it's a political and immigration reason. As soon as you declare all these uh, organizations a terrorist organization, everybody coming over that border fleeing from the violence now has a legal claim. Asylum. To asylum. Yep. And uh, that is a big issue, I think, that is at the at the core well, it's not of things. Like, it's not it's like it's stopping one. anything at this point either. I mean, it's when you look at what's coming across, it's like everybody's claiming asylum anyway. Yeah, I mean, I I, I it's it's a hard it's I you know it's a hard issue. It's a complex one. Uh something has to be done. And if it isn't done, something's gonna be forced upon the United States to react. And I think that's where we're headed. Five years ago I said Five, in five years, uh, not two years ago, I said in five years, we're going to see some sort of military intervention by the U.S. and Mexico. And with everything that's going on, I think I'm pretty well on my way to kind of be right about that. Uh, Members of Congress have talked about that. It's, it's, it's a bipartisan thing. So I think it's, it's something's coming. Um, we're heading into elections now in Mexico. And what do you think about the woman candidate? Do you think she's got a shot? Uh, there seems to be absolutely nobody in the political realm that has any sort of name behind behind them. I think she's going to be a sure win for this these uh, coming elections. Um, the the other running the other guy that was running Evrat, who was basically taken out, um, he had some interesting uh, ideas about the state of security in Mexico, and I think some of these are going to be rehashed by this political candidate he had something called the plan angel for mexico which is basically a ai ran uh chinese uh, state provided um security plan uh that uh, involves social credit and uh, social credit here we go again yeah it's social credit and uh surveillance and uh drones and you name it basically uh and he showcased this video of the people that were involved in the creation of this. And, uh, you know, there's a big, uh, there's a big segment of that, of that on, Ch on the Chinese president basically showing up in that video. I think that's where we're headed. Uh, there's open hostility and there's open, um, there's, there's an open political hostility between Mexico and the United States. Now, um, there's a lot of tension going on and China's being invited in. And you can see that in uh, different layers of the politics in, in Mexico and, and anti-Americanism in Mexico is at an all-time high. So it's a perfect storm. Well, let's rewind a little bit because I want to talk a little bit more about your time on the police force now and on this uh, experimental group. So um, what were some of the things that you got involved in that you started – you know, at some point you felt like you could make a difference, right? So what, what were the things that you were doing that you thought, hey, man, I, I really can make a difference. I really can impact things. What kind of operations or uh, things were you guys doing? We would basically get uh, information from, uh, I think, uh, the 
basically a national platform of information that was being that just got started and uh through leadership and our leadership was basically the mil- military members that were working in a civilian capacity at this point like Lazola uh since they were members of the military and they were high ranking officers they had access to information that none of us could ever have access to so there was a clear line of communication from the top to the all the, all the way to the bottom and we had people that we can trust that we can work with and we had actual you know um secret uh, secrecy within the groups uh once we were we were settled so we'd basically be going out every night figuring uh figuring some of these target packages out um from uh, grow sites to laboratories to people who were running some of the most uh, sophisticated abduction and ransom operations uh, the world had ever seen back then to to just figuring out where things were coming from and where they were going to a lot of that work was done in cooperation with the united states i got to work a lot of uh, a lot of stuff uh, with, with with our liaison a unit so it was basically you could see the pace of it uh, as soon as uh, Lisa Ola got involved in actually being the director of us and getting everything lined up so we can operate. It was clear. It was it was it was work being done. It was fear being felt on the other side of the of the table. Uh, the people we were fighting. Um, our weapons changed. Uh, you know, before we were on, uh, it was unheard of to see a, a police officer carrying around a full, fully automatic rifle or a grenade launcher for that, for that, for that, uh, for that fact. And slowly but surely, he started arming us and preparing us for a war. He very, very much treated it as a war or as a um, counterinsurgency, is what he would say. Uh, he would, instead of sending us out in small groups, he would send us out in big groups and we would operate in different parts of the city during the night and we would move around. So it was an unknown where we were going to be or what was going to happen. We didn't even know where we were going to be sometimes, some nights. We would just be moved around randomly. What was your area of responsibility? Just Tijuana or the state? All of Baja. Or- All, of Baja. All, of Baja. All of Baja. And I worked outside of Baja a few times uh, on loan, um, but mostly all of Baja. So, and Mexico, if I remember, is structured, is it 38 states or 37 states? Uh, 37 states, I think, yeah. So, you've got, you've got state police forces, right? Then you've got a federal police force. Ba- uh, so, so, back then, there were the, back then, the federal police was basically army guys dressed in gray, and they would ride in the back of our trucks. That okay. Was the, that was the federal <laughs> police back then, when we first got started. It eventually professionalized, and they were trying to figure out, so they were trying to catch up with what we were doing, basically. Uh, but back then, the, the the federal police was army guys dressed in gray in the back of the truck. So there's federal police, state police, and local municipal police. The municipal police historically and all on the and all over the country has been the the issue because it's local police that live there, that have their families living there, and obviously it's a very easy target to go after. And since there's a lot of them, you know, it's hard to move anything in a city without them knowing. So that's who the cartels basically didn't get involved with directly. And I think you mentioned it in an interview you did. It basically boils down to a plato or plomo, right? These yeah. guys are living there. Uh, yeah, Lazola had a very, very interesting approach to cleaning up some of those uh, municipal institutions. He basically took if he, if he, when Tijuana was was very corrupt um, back then, still is now. But there was a time when he he cleaned it up for a bit. Uh, he would go into the police precincts and say, "Hey, who's in charge? This guy? Oh, cool, cool. Obviously, he's in leagues with one of the two cartels that are fighting over Tijuana. So he would send him, move him to the precinct precinct that was being ran by the other cartel. <laughs> it would switch him. So." Uh, they would immediately quit and then he would put his people in, you know, it was, it was basically the the best confidence exam ever. Um, immediately most of these people would quit the next day. Um, this sounds did, like Northern Ireland, the Protestants and the Catholics, you know, you switch things up. This is, that's, that's an issue with in Mexico. I mean, some of this corruption just goes deep and has, and is blood related. It's historic. Um, and it, it's very fractured. Even within a, a single city, you'll see, one side of the city is involved with one group and the other side is involved with the other. 
So politics are always, it's a, it's a Game of Thrones almost <laughs> a level thing. But he did a lot of, I mean, we were working daily to get things back to a, a sense of normal or a sense of safety. Uh, when we were, when, when I got started, these cartel groups would broad daylight run around the city in convoys with AKs out the window. This Tijuana. And by the time we were probably five or five or six years in, that didn't happen anymore. They were hiding now. Um, so things were changing. So we, we did feel that things were changing. How did you uh, make it change? I mean, what did you do to make it? Because obviously at some point there's got to be, I mean, violence is, is inherent in things that happen like this. But how did you, how did you, from an operational standpoint, you talk about even like an insurgency, at some, do you get the public to work with you on this? Or is this just simply your tactics and your, uh, your own resources? I think the municipal police was key. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Izaolabe specifically went after cleaning up, professionalizing and sorting out the municipal police locally. And using us as a brace to hold things while that was happening, um, and the municipal police was disarmed for 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 a few weeks. Uh, at some point, uh, all of the municipal police in Tijuana, was, their guns were taken. So all of us were basically used, and the military were used as a auxiliary police force in Tijuana. I remember going on uh, going out on a few <laughs> um, responding calls, and that's probably the bulk of my real like community policing experience uh, was when I was basically replacing the municipal police. Um, so he went out, he went, he went at things systematically. And I think uh, he was allowed to do a lot in diff- at different layers, layers of the government, which is what he, why he was so successful. Um, since he came from the federal uh, branch, uh, the military, uh, he involved, he was involved directly in basically institutionalizing a professional police forum force at a state level with us. And then he was put in charge of the municipal police in Tijuana. So he attacked it from three layers and th- from three sides. And I think that's what led to his success, uh, cleaning up the city, at least for the time it was, because it's pretty much back to, back to, uh, back to square one right now. Was that during the Ariano Felix days or? It, it was, it was at the tail end of them, uh, Something happened uh, to the Ariano Felix uh, cartel. Uh, pro- it's probably related to most of their members being arrested or killed. Um, there was a fracture there. A few of their top-level lieutenants basically switched sides to the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, among them, a guy named, uh, they used to call him the three, the three letters, El Teo. Um, he, was basic, he basically formed a hyper-violent uh, uh, seen a law cartel cell in Tijuana and went to war with the remnants of the Ariano Felix cartel. Um, that's what, that's the bulk of the violence that I saw during the time that I was initially active down there. Um, you would see 12, 12 people show up dead one night. You know, you would see shootouts in the middle of the day, uh, in different parts of the city. You, know, you would see the military, uh, basically show up and be involved in uh, in some of these shootouts as well. So it's very much an urban warfare, warfare setting. Like uh, with a lot of the things I saw, like I think I, I, when we would go to foreign training and learn from other people, I think I remember having this moment where we were being shown some of the IRA uh, um, violence that happened back in the day in Ireland, how they were fighting the military. Uh, the English, basically, and that's that's very much reminded me of some of the stuff that was happening in, in Baja at that time. I was going to say, we had two of my friends on uh, from uh, New Scotland Yard, the Counterterrorism Command, and one of them was working uh, back in the day uh, when it was the Royal Ulster Constabulary during the Troubles, you know, in Northern Ireland, and some of the tactics they did. They, he was there. He actually responded when they blew up Lord Mountbatten and the boat that he was on. And there is, I mean, we always wondered how much cross-pollination, was there any cross-pollination between like the provisional IRA and some of those folks that are ending up in Mexico to teach them techniques or is this? Yeah. I mean, uh, bomb making in Mexico comes directly from the IRA. There's there's no question about it. Uh, IRA people were arrested and and detained in Colombia training the FARC members. And some of those same techniques and tactics have shown up in bomb testing uh, fields in Guadalajara and Jalisco, for example. those uh, homemade mortar uh, devices, uh, mining explosives being utilized to arm uh, civilian drones um, and to disperse uh, very poisonous chemical pesticides as part of the payload. 
um, a lot of these actually do stem from some IRA uh, uh, influence. So there's definitely an influence there as far as the explosives uh, that have been found all over Mexico. We've just, we've been experiencing this renaissance of explosives all over Mexico recently. Uh, uh, roadside IEDs are now a thing, and the military is actually learning and preparing for them now. Uh, it's something that hadn't happened realistically. I mean, we've had car bombs before, but like roadside IEDs are now being utilized in places like Michoacan, for example. Well, Murph, what was the stat when you and Javier were down there going after Pablo? How many how many bombs a day were going off at the peak? It wasn't unusual to have ten or fifteen per day. There was one evening when we'd been out on ops all day. We came back. We we're in, we're at the base in Medellin that night. We heard seventeen different bombs go off. Wow! Yeah, wow. Was- uh, in Mexico, there's places where these bombs are being utilized a lot, specifically drone ones. Um, we don't have a lot of ordnance laying around all, the, all over the place, but we do have a shit ton of mining uh, mining explosives that are all over the place. Do you see them using the ammonium nitrate to, to yeah, blow things up stuff. also? Every now and then, specifically what they utilize is a thing called CEMEX, which is basically plastic, uh, mining level plastic explosives is what we currently see a lot. Those loads are usually made with that. And it's, it's uh, controlled and restricted, but it's Mexico. You know, you can't have a gun unless you're poor. You know, if you're poor, <laughs> you can't have a gun. But if you have money, you can get whatever you want here. Yeah. Well, let's 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 talk a little bit more because this leads into a discussion about you know you're on for a long time, but you kind of cross as they say the Rubicon. There becomes a point to where you realize, hey, um, what I'm doing isn't making a difference anymore. There are some changes in the government, changes in you know the unit. What starts happening where you start seeing going, yeah, this is not something I think I can do for the next 20 years. You know, I, I've got to start thinking of an exit strategy. When does that when does that kind of thinking start happening for you? I mean, uh, lays all the leaves and leaves under very bad, bad terms, basically. Uh, with bad terms with who? With the government. Uh, he's basically pushed out by people who think he's doing too well of a job. Um, two of our guys get uh, brutally killed and one of them came out of the academy with me Uh, I knew his family great guy what's his name? Uh, Arenas All right, we we salute him, we dedicate this to your buddy absolutely Um, he was a lawyer, he had no reason to go into the police force, he just wanted to make a difference and he had a giant heart Um, he uh, he was picked up outside of the hotel we were staying at by some dudes dressed in federal police uh, uniforms who were not federal police. And uh, while we were all being basically concentrated in the city to find these people, he was told to, to step down. Uh, that was the first major blow. You know, was he getting too close to something or just being too effective? I think he was being too effective. He was starting he was he was being too effective and too broad in his approach is what I think he uh, probably happened. You know, he was basically going he was going after everybody and that is not something you should you, you could do for a long period in Mexico apparently. Didn't he eventually suffer an injury? Uh he was he had over nine assassination attempts on his life. They <laughs> see they tried to poison him with uh, the juices, the like uh fruit juice that it, that they would uh they would put in his fridge in the office. Uh, a military convoy was cloned. They had um they, they found Hummers painted exactly like the military and they were gonna ambush him in some part of the city. A friend of mine was involved in the security and he he, he fucking did some legendary shit to get, get him out of that. Eventually, when he was the police chief of uh, Juarez, when he was leaving that job, he got shot in the back by uh, by somebody uh, that cost him the use of his legs. He's in a wheelchair now. Uh, still smart as hell, and still I'm still afraid of him as a man. But uh, when he left, it it basically gutted us. Um, he, he created a very vellicose. Uh, forward-driven, militarized police force with a lot of dudes running around with machine guns just ready to respond to shit, and all of a sudden we were neutered. We were told to to quiet down. We are told to be less overt. We were told to go back, into, go back to community policing. Uh, we were told to stand down, basically. Things started slowly changing. You know, um, politically... Uh, this 
to the right presidency, left office, and was replaced by a center-leftist uh, presidency that was more of the old guard of politics in Mexico, the the pre as uh, the the pre as it's known. The PRA, right? They had they had like ruled for a long time. They lost. I mean, for like they lost the first election. I think wasn't it after um, uh, Vicente Fox didn't wasn't didn't he lose in the PRA? That was their last like the, the Vicente Fox and Calderon, and when Calderon got out and came, they got back to the PRI basically with the with Peña Nieto. Um, when he came in, a lot of stuff happened. Um, it's 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 uh it's the amnesia effect is what i call it you know every every presidential cycle ends and anything that worked if it worked because it was because of the other party fuck that it's gone you know See, that sounds familiar <laughs> it certainly <laughs> if, does but, it's not unique to mexico pal uh, it i think what's unique to mexico is that they will throw out everybody i mean it doesn't matter if you have there's no job security i mean it's not like uh it's it's it, so imagine this every five years you would fire everybody from the fbi and rehire everybody new this is the level of retarded uh, retardation that we that i'm talking about so you had these institutions that were built up over the span of two presidential cycles uh, like the one that i belong to uh that were doing the job they were getting good at it in a lot of ways and then a lot of the people that were fired because of their polygraph exams being failed uh, sued the government and were hired back because that's not a legal grounds to fire anybody, even though they were on the take. You know, you would see people that hadn't been on the force in six years, seven years, just all of a sudden just show back out the office. People that you clearly knew they're working on the other side or back. And some of these guys you had actually arrested, right? Some of them were arrested by the unit that I was in. Yeah. And they were back. How did, um, that, that's that got to be a weird feeling is that you realize uh, you were in handcuffs, you were kicked off, you were charged, and now you're back. I mean, you talk about trust issues. I mean, inherently. Oh, yeah. They were laughing in the office. You know, the, 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 the cars that were in the parking lot, you know, <laughs> like I, you know, I, I didn't earn, I didn't earn, a, I didn't earn an absurd amount of money. And I basically drove the same car driving into that job as the one that I left with it, left that job just for discretion purposes. Uh, but some of the absurdity you would see in those parking lots after, after these changes were made, it was pretty fascinating. You know, the overt nature of the corruption was like, Oh yeah, we're not going to hide anymore. Let's let's take my Hummer H2 to work. Hey players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.